Okay, since it's uh, three minutes now past twelve, it's good afternoon. Okay, you need a Bible. You definitely need a Bible today. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, do yourself a favor, put up your hands. We have some Bibles at the back. So, uh, Peter, can you grab some, please? Okay, some, there's some demand for Bibles. Okay. Oh, oh no, you do, they'll, they'll serve it to you. Don't have to help yourself. It's okay. Uh, Show the front, show. Anybody else? Okay. Now, I want to ask you this question. Who is the boss in your life? Who is the ruler of your life? Who is the king in your life? And ultimately, when it comes down to it, who runs your life? Uh, you know, who makes the decisions in your life? Who is the ultimate authority in your life? When it comes to how you spend your money, when it comes to how you spend your time, when it comes to how you decide what to do in your life, who to hang out with, how you relate to people, how you bring up your children, who is the boss in your life? Now, if you answer, answer honestly, right, you say uh, that it's me, I'm the boss, right, I'm the one who makes the decisions in my life, well, then according to the passage that we've been looking at in the book of Mark, then we're not ready to meet with God. We're not ready as God comes into the world to meet with Him. Because over the last few uh, weeks, we've been seeing how God is coming to the world and He sent John the Baptist to prepare the way for Him. And what did John the Baptist say? Well, John the Baptist says, if you want to meet God, you have to repent. That's what he says there in chapter 1 verse 4, isn't it? He says, and so John came, baptizing the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And that's what we need to do. In order to meet God, we need to repent. And we learned last week that repentance is not repenting of an individual sin or repenting of one instance of doing something wrong or repenting of one uh, uh, incident of what uh, I've done. Right? But it's actually a whole attitude of life. Right? So in the slide up here, right, we said that repentance is literally a change of your mind, a change of the disposition of your heart, uh, a change in which you make a U-turn in your life and instead of saying, I live for myself, I'm the ruler of my life, I'm the ruler of my destiny, it is God who will be in charge of my life. Now, today as we look at this passage, the crowd is listening to John the Baptist and they're looking over the shoulder of John the Baptist and they're waiting for who? For Yahweh, for the Lord, they're looking for God, right? And they're rolling out the red carpet, the, the, the limousine is ready, they're taking out the camera phones. And what happens? Jesus comes, right? And Jesus is... I mean, their eyes are nobody. Right? He's like a, he's just a carpenter. He comes from Galilee. Right? It's like a, it's like quite a small provincial area. It's like coming from Pasaris. I mean, something like that, right? Okay? So, it's like, you know, so they're asking themselves, why? Why are they coming? Why, why should we listen to this person called Jesus? Because Jesus preaches a very powerful message. It? And he says that he is the one that they should be waiting for. He is the one that is actually being prepared of the way by John the Baptist. And that's what he says there in verse 14, right? So turn to me to verse 14, and this is what John says. So what Jesus says, sorry. After John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Now what does Jesus mean when he says, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Now, what does that mean? Is that like, you know, you're, you're flying, flying British Airways when they're not on strike, right? 
and uh, you're going you're going to England and you're flying over France does that mean that the kingdom of the United Kingdom is near you know you're near the territory of the United Kingdom or perhaps you're traveling to uh, Jordan right the kingdom of Jordan and you're you're getting close so the kingdom of Jordan is near no, okay kingdom which is being used by Jesus here is not a territory it's not a, a place or a space or a land but kingdom here which what Jesus is saying is the rule of God. It is the reign of God. It is the authority and the power of God. And what he's saying is very scandalous because he's saying that the kingdom of God is near because I am bringing the kingdom in. The kingdom of God is bursting and breaking into the world because Jesus brings in the rule of God and the authority of God. That's as plain and simple as what he's saying. The time has come. I have come to bring in God's kingdom. And that's why some commentators, if you look up here, I don't usually quote the commentator uh, word for word, but this is the, what he says is very true, isn't it? In the commentary. He says, in the gospel, the kingdom of God is Christ himself. So you speak about the kingdom of God, you're speaking of Christ. In the person of Jesus, men are confronted by the kingdom of God. And that's why in the book of Acts, uh, when Philip preaches, right? this is what Philip preaches in uh, verse 12. Uh, they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And they were baptized, both men and women. You see how the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they're synonymous. They're the same thing, isn't it? The, the kingdom of God is breaking in with Jesus. And that's why Jesus says to them that they must repent and believe the good news. Not just believe the good news that the kingdom of God is coming, but believe the good news that in Jesus, He is bringing in the kingdom of God. Now the problem is that, uh, if you look at the next slide, the people, the crowd, they're waiting for Yahweh, God, to come and burst forth from heaven. And who are they left with? They're left with Jesus, a carpenter, a, a man from Galilee. Right? And, and Jesus is saying, look, repent, but don't repent and follow God, follow me. Let me be the ruler over your life. Believe, not just believe in God, but believe in me, isn't it? But the question is, why should they believe in Jesus? Why should they repent and follow Jesus? Well, that's why this passage is here, isn't it? Because if there's one theme, one common theme in the passage that we read, it is the theme of what? There is a word which is repeated over and over again here in this passage. And what is that word? It's not Jesus, right? The, the, the word is authority. This whole passage is about the authority of Jesus. Why Jesus has authority and why we must therefore repent and believe in Him. See, look at that in verse 22. First instance of authority. The people were amazed at His teaching because He taught them as one who had authority. Right, authority, verse 22. And then again, in verse 27. The people were also amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. Again in chapter 2 verse 10, it says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. See, this section here is all about authority. Authority. And Jesus has different types of authority. It's not just, He just doesn't have one sort of authority. He has many different sorts of authority. Okay, so you look at me, in the first section, we've got the first section which deals with authority. Verse 21 to verse 27. So turn to me in your Bibles to verse 21, chapter 1. 
they went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want of us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were also amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. Now what we see here is that Jesus has authority, right? But there's different sorts of authority. The word authority is used here differently in the two instances. I think the first instance where he says he is teaching with authority is where someone is an authority about a subject, you know? Someone's an authority on botany. Someone's an authority on, on, I don't know, soccer or something. It's where Jesus has such total, unparalleled, absolute knowledge that people look at him and they, they can't debate with him. They can't argue with him, they can't disagree with him because his knowledge is absolute. And here, he has authority in terms of preaching God's word, isn't it? Preaching God's word. You see, when I come up here and I teach you, there are many times where I come to a passage and I say, well, I'm not really sure what this passage means. And there will be times where it is true, I don't know what the passage means. And there may be times, even the Bible study group, and uh, I'm sure you've experienced this, where we will argue and talk about something. And I'll say, you know, I think you're right. And uh, I'm wrong. That, that makes more sense. And there are other times where we will look at a passage and we'll say, okay, we'll agree to disagree because we just can't understand what this passage is saying, right? But Jesus, you never read about Jesus in the Bible where he says, ah, you know, guys, I'm not sure what this passage really means, right? <laughs> and... Uh, he, he never loses any debates. You know, he never says, you know, yeah, I think you're right, you know, and I'm wrong. And he never says, well, we'll agree to disagree on this passage. Because he is as authority in terms of God's word. He's authority in terms of God's will and the knowledge of God. See, other people preach about God's word. I'm preaching about God's word. But he preaches God's word. And that's why if you look in the passage, it says there, that the people were amazed, right, in verse 22, the people were amazed. And the word here, amazed, is literally, they were struck with shock. They were, they, were, they were thunderstruck, they were stunned because of the authority of his teaching. Now, I remember when I was younger, I, uh, I, I wanted to play chess and I, I, was, you know, I was really a, a, really a geek. Came to chess, right? And uh, in those days, I used to actually call up my friends on the telephone and we would play chess over the telephone. You see, this is the days before internet, right? So, you just call people then and then you say, oh, you know, we'll move the piece here. And I remember when I was six years old, I went to the community center and I, I, was, I was just starting out chess and there was this guy who was wonderful, he was a chess master, a grandmaster and, and he was a volunteer and he would teach us how to play chess. So here was I and I was just learning how to play chess and his authority in chess was so great that I was just, you know, every time I went there, I never argued with him, I just listened because his knowledge was so vast and so profound. And I think that's the same thing. It's like, when Jesus comes and he preaches, his authority in his teaching is so vast and so great that people just cannot debate with him, they cannot argue with him, they cannot question him because he has authority 
and his teaching. He preaches God's word. But the second part, there is a different sort of authority. He again is teaching, but this sort of authority is different, isn't it? Because this authority is casting out the evil spirit. So imagine here at church, let's say every Sunday uh, we have someone in our service and they're possessed by some evil spirit. And uh, some of you might think that some people here are possessed by evil spirits, but actually they're not, right? They're just being normal. But imagine someone here is possessed by evil spirit. And, and you know, we will try to cast out that demon or whatever. We can't do anything. We just wring our hands with despair and think, oh, what are we going to do for this person? You know, the consistory will be meeting up month after month and think, what are we going to do with this person? And I think that that would be the case with this person in the synagogue. Here was a person, and it's, you know, if you look at, again, it's very important to pay attention, right, in verse 24. So what do you want to do with us? It's not just one evil spirit, but there's a, somehow a, a, a plural, um, pluralistic evil spirit in this person, and he, this person is in the synagogue. And the religious leaders can't do anything about it. They've tried everything. But what does Jesus do? He says in 25, verse 25, Be quiet, come out of him. There is no prayer, there is no uh, exorcism ritual, there is no chanting, right? there is no technique, there is no symbolic act, there is no spells. He just speaks. He just speaks and the evil spirit is cast out. See, the authority of Jesus here is not knowledge, right? but real power. Real power so that when he speaks, things happen. Things happen. And this is the power of God, isn't it? You can't help but be reminded of Genesis chapter 1 where God speaks and things happen. Right? Okay, so you look at Genesis chapter 1, which is up here. God said, let there be light. And there was light. God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate the water from the water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it and it was so. Jesus has the authority of God where when he speaks, things happen. See, I, I'm sure that you have the experience that I experienced, right? The experience of man. Where when you speak, nothing happens. Right? Okay? Clean up this thing. Okay, it never gets cleaned up, right? Okay? Flush the toilet. Never gets flushed. See, the reality is that when God speaks, when Jesus speaks, things will happen. Powerful things happen. And here... This evil spirit, which is in the synagogue among God's people, it is cast out, isn't it? Just by the words of Jesus. Now, as we look at this passage, as we look at Mark, I think that to understand Mark properly, it's very important to pay attention to the characters in the account. I've got here my notes from 13 years ago from theological college, and it says here, understanding the characters is essential to comprehending the story See, the characters here in the story show us how we should respond to the authority of Jesus. And right from the very beginning already, we see that there are two principal characters, isn't it? Just from verse, uh, from verse 14 to verse 28, we see the two principal characters are who? The fisherman and the evil spirit man, isn't it? Okay? And the fisherman, what are the fishermen like? Uh, I'm not going to go through and read it all, we just had it read to us by Cheryl. But who are the fishermen like? They're just provincial people. Their whole life is just the deck of the boat, the currents of the lake, selling the fish in the marketplace. That's all their life is about. Now, Jesus comes along and he calls them to follow him. 
And in verse 18, it says, At once, at once, they left their nets and followed him. No questions asked. In verse 20, same thing. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. You see, why is that? Is it Jesus has some sort of hypnotic power? Right? Is it some sort of magic? No, right? It's because they recognize the authority of Jesus and they respond by following him. You see, that's one response to the recognition of Jesus' authority, isn't it? To, to follow him, the early disciples, the first disciples, they followed Jesus. But notice the evil spirit. See, the evil spirit also recognizes the authority of Jesus. Look what it says there. Right, they recognize Jesus as the Holy One of God. They recognize His authority. But what is their response to the authority of Jesus, the whole evil spirits? They say, what do you want with us, Jesus and Nazareth? They reject the authority of Jesus. They fight the authority of Jesus. And I think that as we look at this passage, the question is, in, in some ways, which side are we closer to, isn't it? Are we closer to the side of the disciples and we follow Jesus, we repent and we believe in Him? Or are we closer to the side of the evil spirit where we reject Jesus and we fight against Him and we say, what do you want with us, Jesus? When you look at your life, who is the authority in your life? Who is the boss in your life? Who is the ruler in your life in terms of your time, your money, your relationships, how you act? Because if it is not Jesus, then actually you are closer in your response to the evil spirit man, right? What do you want of us, Jesus? What do you want of us in terms of telling me what to do with my time? What do you want to do? What do you have to do with me in terms of the way I spend my money or the way I act with other people? See, the question is, how do we respond to the authority of Jesus? It's not enough to recognize that Jesus is Lord that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Christ. The fundamental question is, how will we respond to the authority of Jesus? Will we follow Him or will we reject Him? Now, as we come to the, the last section in chapter 2, um, that's the, the, the last part where, again, the authority of Jesus is being mentioned. We come to a group of people who really, really follow the authority of Jesus. They really have faith in Jesus. They really believe in Jesus' authority. And you can see that because they're willing to carry their paralyzed friend to the house. And when they get to the house, there's a huge crowd outside. But yet they believe in Jesus' authority so much that they're willing to carry this paralyzed man up onto the roof. And they believe and trust in Jesus so much that they're willing to dig a hole in the roof and to lower their paralyzed friend into the room of Jesus. See, they will only do that if they really believe that Jesus had the authority to heal, isn't it? See, look at this slide up here. These are the roofs of uh, the houses in, uh, in Israel. Okay? And you see that they're all flat, right? They're, they're not crooked like this. Okay? They are all flat. And you can see that it's still a bit of a climb to get up to the roof to bring your friend up. And the roof of uh, these Palestinian houses are about two feet deep. They're, they're sort of packed earth full of straw and, and, and branches and held up by beams. Okay? Now, if they didn't have faith in Jesus and His authority, 
they wouldn't be bothered climbing up. So, I mean, you're sort of like, uh, guys, this is a bit embarrassing. Like, let's, let's come back another day. Like, I mean, yeah, Jesus is a very busy man. Like, you know, look, look, all the people, they'll be laughing at us. It's like, imagine, here we are, and I'm, you know, I'm preaching, and, and all of a sudden, the, the roof starts caving in, and these people start lowering in someone. Right? It's like embarrassing. It's really, it's like, if you didn't have faith, real faith in Jesus' authority, you just wouldn't take the effort. You'd just be like, oh, well, uh, well, we'll come back another day. But they really, really believed in Jesus' authority. But the amazing thing is, look at what happens when they finally finish what they aim to do, which is to bring the paralyzed man in front of Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 5. Jesus saw their faith, and he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now I love to see the faces of those four men and the paralyzed men when Jesus said that, right? It's like you can sort of see their face. Hey, you know, we climbed up this roof, we dug a hole, we lowered our friend here, and why? Because we trusted in your authority to heal him. And what do you say to us? Your sins are forgiven. It's like, what sort of joke is this, right? What happened to stand up, arise, walk, run? Right? What do you mean your sins are forgiven? You see, they believed in the the authority of Jesus, but didn't realize that Jesus had stronger, even more powerful authorities than the authority to forgive sins. And these words are really shocking words because it it, it must have made such an impact on the people there that uh, even in Matthew and in Luke, the words recorded are exactly the same. Your sins are forgiven. The words of Jesus. And ultimately, it is so shocking because, yes, you know, uh, Jesus can heal. Jesus can, his words have power. Yes, Jesus is knowledge of God. But here, the forgiving of sins is truly and uniquely something that only God can do. Only God can forgive sins. Because only God is the person that we foundationally and primarily sin against. If you punch someone, Yes, you've sinned against that person, but you've sinned most of all against God. If you steal something, you've sinned, yes, against that person you stole against, but primarily against God. You, you don't pay your parking coupon, right? Yes, you're sinning against the, 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 the URA or whatever, but first and foremost, you're sinning against God for not obeying the law. See, look at what it says here in Genesis chapter 39. Right? And, uh, we all know Joseph. You all know Joseph, right? He was the guy with the Technicolor coat. But this is when he's a bit older, right? And uh, here he is. And he's serving in Pharaoh's household. And Joseph, by this stage, he'd grown up to be well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. Okay? But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against? Who? God, isn't it? Now, if you and I were writing this account, let's say God said to us, okay, why don't you write Genesis chapter 39 verse 7 and 8? We would say, how could you do in how could you do such a wicked thing and sin against Pharaoh, isn't it? 
Because that's what he's saying. Pharaoh gave me the run of the whole house. Pharaoh has not withheld anything from me. How could I then sin against Pharaoh because he's treated me so well? But you notice Joseph doesn't say that. Joseph says, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? See, God is the one in which we sin against whenever we sin. And therefore, to have our sins forgiven is only something God can do. And by saying that your sins are forgiven, Jesus is saying that he has the authority of God. See, I can't come up to you and say, hey, you know guys, next year, you don't have to pay any tax. I absolve you of paying tax next year. Right? That's right. And you say, well, who are you, Andrew? You know, you're not a tax office, right? Or I say to you, you know, for those of you who are in reservists or NS, okay, you guys, you don't have to do NS anymore. No more reservists for you, right? All right, that's right. But who am I? Right? Am I the SAF? No. For those of you in school, I say, oh, you know, guys, you don't have to study anymore. You know, I'll give you your, your, your A-levels. You all have all the A's. You can go to university. But who am I? Am I the MOE? No, right? See, only if it comes true, then can I say that, well, yes. Yes, you know, I'm the SAF. I'm the tax officer. I'm the MOE. And I think that's the dilemma that Jesus faces because he says to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. But no one knows whether it really is true, isn't it? Can Jesus give? Like, let's say I say to you, okay, you know, your sins are forgiven. But how do you know it's true? Can I give you a certificate which says, your sins are forgiven? No, isn't it? Nobody knows whether it's true or not. Only God knows. And you and I will know on the last day, but by that time it will be too late, right? So that's the dilemma that Jesus has because he can't show his authority to forgive sins in this way. And that's what they say here, isn't it? That's what he says in verse 8. Why are you thinking these things? He says in verse 8. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk, but that you know that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. They praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. You see, Jesus here has two actions, right? He can do. And both of them, in a sense, are humanly impossible. Uh, One of them is visible. To heal, heal a paralyzed man, even today, we can't heal a paralyzed man. We can't make a paralyzed man move or walk. It's true, isn't it? I mean, the, who are the most famous paralyzed people you can think of? Uh, maybe up here? You can recognize them? If you can't, then obviously they're not famous enough, right? But one of them is Christopher Reeve, uh, who still since died. Uh, and the other one is Stephen Hawking, right? And these people are rich, they're famous, they're powerful, they're influential. But yet, with all the modern technology at their disposal, they still couldn't walk, couldn't move, couldn't couldn't run, couldn't kick a soccer ball, couldn't hit a, swing a tennis racket. It is impossible to heal a paralyzed man humanly. And that is the vi- visible, impossible act, isn't it? But also, we can't forgive. We can't forgive in the way that God can. That's also an impossible act, but that's an invisible one. And what Jesus does is he does the visible to prove that he can do, or he has done the invisible. He heals the paralyzed man 
which is a visible impossible act to show that he has forgiven him and he is free from his sins which is the invisible impossible act see I think that's why when you look at the, your NIVs I think it's true for the ESV I, I think that the title is wrong right uh, by the way the titles don't actually aren't part of the original part of the Bible that's something that they add later on and the title says if you look at your ESV or your NIV or I don't know what you're reading but it says Jesus heals a paralytic is that what your title says? that's what my title says Jesus heals a paralytic right? but that's not the main point of this passage Jesus heals the paralytic to show that he has forgiven the paralytic of his sins the healing of the paralytic is a means to an end to show that this man's sins are really forgiven and I think that that's what the authority that Jesus wants us to hear isn't it that's why he says there in verse 10 that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins that is what this passage is about that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins and he's trying to show that the most important thing for all of us here is the forgiveness of sins you see if you think about it it's really shocking what Jesus says he says it is better to be a forgiven paralyzed man better to be forgiven and never be able to use your hands and your legs and your body than to be an unforgiven able bodied person able to do everything you know to run to jump it is, it is, it is, that person is worse off than a forgiven paralytic but what he's actually trying to say is that that's why we must repent and believe in Jesus, isn't it? Because if Jesus can only heal, if he can only teach, if he can only cast out demons, then why should we repent and believe in Jesus? It's not a very convincing or persuasive argument. But if Jesus can forgive sins, then we need to repent and we need to believe in him. Because the forgiving of sins allows us to enter into the kingdom. You see, uh, we need to pay attention to the passage. Uh, we can't go through it all in detail. But you come back with me to verse 24. Verse 24. And notice how the evil spirit describes Jesus. He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And what it's actually saying is, Jesus is a Holy God. The Holy One of God. He could have described Jesus in a million ways, right? Jesus, the powerful one of God. Jesus, the, the, uh, the son of God. But he says, the holy one of God. And why? Because the holy God brings in his holy kingdom. See, if you look up here on this slide, right? Look up here on this slide. Uh, this is us, okay? It's not a tomato. Right? This is us. And if we want to enter into this kingdom, which is ruled by the holy one of God, because the kingdom itself is holy, what do we need to get into this kingdom? What do we need? What visa do we need? What PR do we need? Right? How do we get citizenship in this kingdom of God, this holy kingdom of God? We must be free of sin. We must be forgiven. And the only person that has ever been able to do that is God, and the only person, human person that has ever been able to do that is Jesus. And that's why we need to repent and believe in Jesus. 
So where do you stand today? Do you recognize the authority of Jesus in your life? That he speaks God's word, that he, he has a power in his words, his, his ability to forgive sins. Do you then repent and believe and follow Jesus? Because if you don't, then you can't get into the kingdom of God, isn't it? You are not, you're not worthy to enter this holy kingdom ruled by the Holy One of God. See, in conclusion, uh, last week I was reading the Today paper, okay, and the next slide, Today paper, very good because it's free, right? And uh, there was this interesting uh, article which I, I, I so struck me that I cut it out. And it's about how in America, in the state of Arizona, I think they have, uh, they have $127 million of speeding fines where they've caught people on a speeding camera going too fast, right? But out of the $127 million, only $37 million have been paid, right? Okay? So I don't know how much that is, it's about a third only, right? And these people do not dispute that they're speeding. They're caught on a speeding camera, how else could it be, right? They can't be going too slow, right? It's because they're going too fast. But they are refusing to pay. They're refusing to pay. And even, I think it says here, even judges and even elected officials refuse to pay their speeding tickets. Why? Because they don't want to recognize the authority of the state to make them pay for speeding. It says that they're only going to pay if they get served personally, not by the mail. And I think that this spirit of resenting authority in our lives is the, is the spirit of our day, isn't it? The mood of our day. Because we resent having authority over us. And that's why last week, at the same time, I read that the University of California made a study and they found that since 1960 to today, 70% of Protestant Christians in America have left the church. 70% of Protestant Christians have left the church in America since 1960. But at the same time, 9 out of 10 Americans still say that they believe in God. About 90%, right? 90% of Americans still say that religion is important in their lives. So if you, if you look up here in this thing, in Time Magazine, and the next one, uh, sorry, the picture's not very sharp, Psychology Today, they said, you know, everybody... In America, everybody's interested in religion and spirituality. Even that's Madonna, right? You can't recognize her. But Madonna is interested in spirituality and religion. But it is religion without the authority of the Bible over them. It is religion without the authority of God over them. It is religion without the authority of Jesus over them. See, we're interested in religion. People are interested in spirituality. Even psychology today says that you know, people who are religious, who are spiritual, are healthier, mentally... Uh, better, we don't get Alzheimer's as much or something like that, you know we don't get depressed so often but people want religion and spirituality without the authority but in today's passage, Jesus demands that he has authority over our lives, he says we must repent and we must believe in him and we must follow him so as you reflect on your life, who is the boss in your life, who is the ruler of your life, who is the, the king of your life, who makes the ultimate decisions in your life, your time, your energy, your money. Because unless it is Jesus, then you're not ready to meet with him, isn't it? You're not ready to meet with God. So if you look at this passage, 
let us truly let us truly in every part of our lives bow the knee before Jesus that he has ultimate authority in our lives let's go to God in prayer dear loving and heavenly father as we come before you today help us to see that it is not enough to just recognize Jesus as your son that it is not just enough to recognize Jesus' authority that even the evil spirit recognized Jesus for who he truly was the Holy One of God but dear Father what is really required of us is to repent to turn back to you through Jesus it is to believe in the good news of Jesus your Son the Christ the Saviour it is to follow Jesus help us dear Father to turn aside from all willfulness from all rebellion from all rejection of you and truly let Jesus have the authority over our lives and we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ Amen